were having a discussion about what they would like to have said about them at their funeral. You ever think about that? What, what you would hope people would say about you at your funeral? They're having a discussion among themselves about what they would like to have said about them at their funeral. And after they thought about this for a while, one of the friends spoke up and said, I would like at my funeral for somebody to stand up and look at my casket and say he was a great humanitarian. He really cared for his neighbors. He really opened himself up to his community. The community was a better place because of him. He really was a great humanitarian man. And the other two friends sort of thought about that for a moment. And then the second friend spoke up and said, I think at my funeral, I would like for somebody to stand up and look at my casket and say, he was a great family man. He was a dedicated father, loving husband, He was devoted to his immediate family and his extended family. He was a great family man. And so the other two friends thought about that for a moment. And then the third friend spoke up and said, I think at my funeral, I would like for somebody to stand up and look at my casket and say, look, he's moving. (laughs) I doubt they'll say that about you at your funeral, but those words will be true about you eventually because the resurrection is a reality, and the resurrection is coming. That's the topic of our message this morning. We're in a series called The Afterlife, in which we're looking at a biblical view of those things that come after this life. Two weeks ago, we started with the beginning of the afterlife. We talked about physical death, and when we looked at physical death, we saw three things that are true for the believer. We saw how positively the Scriptures talk about the physical death of a believer then the Scriptures teach us that for one thing, the believer in Jesus Christ knows that physical death is not a punishment for their sin. Jesus Christ has borne in His body and in His soul the punishment for all of our sin. And so physical death is not a punishment for our sin. However, physical death for the unbeliever is of a different nature. Secondly, we saw that physical death is an important part of the sanctification process. Physical death is the greatest opportunity that the believer has to face the unknown with faith. There is no greater unknown that you will ever face than physical death. And so there is no greater opportunity for the believer in Jesus Christ to face the unknown with faith in God and what God has said than physical death. So becoming like Jesus in a death like His is very important for the sanctification process of the believer. Lastly, we also saw that physical death for the believer in Jesus Christ is a blessing because physical death brings an end to the effects of sin, to the consequences of sin. At physical death, the believer ceases to sin. The effects and the consequences of sin are now over. Physical death is necessary in order for the believer to be raised again in a new life with a new body that no longer suffers from the consequences of sin. So for those three reasons, we saw that physical death for the believer in Jesus Christ is not a negative thing, but it is a positive thing. Then last week, we moved on to the intermediate state. That's what we call the period of time between physical death and the resurrection, which is what we'll talk about today. And we looked at the intermediate state and we saw that the Bible shows us a picture of believers who are not in a physical body, but nonetheless, they are interacting with their environment, they are interacting with God, they are praising God in a very physical, seemingly sort of way. We see uh, an existence that they have that is very, very much filled with joy, very much filled with happiness. However, we also know that their redemption is not complete until what we look at today, which is the resurrection, which we'll get to in a moment. 
I do, before we move on, I do want to make one clarification about last week's message that fortunately I didn't really think about this until after the message. One big part of last week's message was Scripture's repeated forbidding of the living to contact the dead. Scripture forbids in all ways, it emphatically forbids communication between the living and the dead. And so one thing we said last week is that um, if you be, if, if a living person believes that a dead person is in communication with them, it's not the spirit of a person, but rather it's the spirit of, it's a demon that's, that's trying to contact us. Now, after the message, what, what occurred to me, um, actually Meredith asked me this question, and I thought I should have spelled that out a little bit better. That is not to say that if a deceased person shows up in your dreams, that that is a demon trying to communicate with you. That's one bit of misunderstanding that I wish I'd clarified last week, but if we, if we know a deceased person, and we've known a deceased person for decades and decades, and we've spent so much of our life with them, then we should expect them to show up in our dreams. That's not the same thing as the dead trying to communicate with the living. However, if you feel like a deceased person is trying to communicate a message to you, that is when we need to beware. So I wanted to just, just make that one quick clarification before we move on. But we did see that the Bible emphatically forbids communication between the dead and the living and the other way around. Now today we move on to step three of uh, the afterlife, that is the resurrection. So you want to have your sermon notes handy. You also want to have your Bibles handy. You may want to go ahead and find 1 Corinthians 15, the passage I read earlier. I'm not going to take the time to reread that passage. But you want to have those two things handy. We'll be referring to those as we talk today about the resurrection. The resurrection, what is the resurrection? The resurrection is the final step of our redemption process. The final step of our redemption process. So, in this sense, those who have departed in Christ, Abraham and Moses and Peter and all those who have departed in Christ, your loved ones that have departed in Christ, their redemption is not yet complete. There is one remaining step, and that remaining step is the resurrection. We know that when God redeems us, He redeems all of us. He doesn't just redeem our souls, but He also redeems our bodies. However, God does not apply all of the benefits to redemption to us simultaneously. At the moment of conversion, we don't receive all of the benefits of redemption. There is in particular one benefit of redemption that is withheld from us until the point of resurrection, and that is the redemption of our physical bodies. That's what Scripture refers to the resurrection as, as the redemption of our bodies. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that is the final step of our redemption process. Sometimes the Scriptures call it glorification. And Paul will tell us, in fact, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, a few verses later, he will say that the glorification of our physical bodies is the final step in redemption. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also lastly glorified in the resurrection of our physical bodies. So, death is the last enemy to be defeated by Christ. Resurrection is the last benefit of redemption. For example, from 1 Corinthians 15, we read this earlier as part of our main text. He must redeem, he must, I'm sorry, He must reign until He has put his, all of His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so that is what we'll look at today the resurrection of our physical bodies. As we begin this this morning, let's put back into our minds 
the image of a curtain. As we think about things after this life, we want to have that image in our mind. The image of a curtain behind the curtain is what occurs after physical death. God has told us some things about what's behind the curtain, but He has not by any means told us all things. And the things that He has not told us, we must be content to not know. We must not seek to peer behind the curtain and find out some of the things that God hasn't told us, but instead by faith, we content ourselves with what He has told us. So that's what we'll be talking about this morning, a biblical view of the resurrection. Once again, the purpose of these messages is twofold. To first of all, affirm a biblical view of the resurrection in this case, but secondly, to increase our anticipation for such a thing. To cause us to eagerly look forward to the day in which our physical bodies will be resurrected. And I think that the message this morning will serve that goal for us. So, let's begin talking about the resurrection. First of all, does the Bible teach us that there is a resurrection? Is there biblical evidence for a resurrection of our physical bodies? Is there biblical evidence that we will exist for eternity in a physical way? Well, I think that the, the Scriptures give us um, extensive evidence of a physical re- resurrection. For example, the New Testament will tell us emphatically about a physical resurrection. For example, um, the passage that we looked at earlier our main passage for this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm not going to reread that at this point, but that passage is all about the physical resurrection of the body. We'll be referring back to that as we go through, but uh, that's a very, that's the Bible's most extensive treatment of the physical resurrection. Likewise, there is a second passage that is also sort of a main passage for the physical resurrection, and that is 1 Thessalonians 4. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, Through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. The dead in Christ will rise first. So those are two central passages that teach of a physical resurrection. But even beyond those passages, we see the concept all over the place in our New Testament. For example, John 5, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or we see from John 6, for example, Jesus says, I shall raise them on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise on the last day. So those places and many other places, the Bible will speak uh, specifically about a physical resurrection. But what does the Old Testament have to say about a resurrection? Because sometimes we, we may have heard that the resurrection is a New Testament concept. Actually, the Old Testament teaches, not, not nearly as prolifically, but the Old Testament does teach of a physical resurrection. For example, John chapter 11, you say, well, wait a minute, John, John is in the New Testament. Well, John chapter 11, this is the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, John chapter 11 is before the death and resurrection of Christ, and before the institution of the church. So the people who are alive in John chapter 11 are, in essence, Old Covenant believers. So in John chapter 11, again, this is Lazarus. Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that. I know that I'll see him again at the resurrection on the last day. So Martha had an understanding from the Old Testament Scriptures of a physical resurrection. Likewise, we see Job chapter 19. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at, that, at the last, he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. 
speaks very clearly, I think, of a physical resurrection. Or Daniel chapter 2. I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we see in those passages very specific reference to physical resurrection. Isaiah also will make specific references to physical resurrection. Likewise, we look to places like Hebrews chapter 11 that speaks of Abraham. Remember the incident in which he was to sacrifice Isaac. And Hebrews chapter 11 will tell us that Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead if he did sacrifice him. Or we look to Paul in the Acts story. Remember as we studied through the Acts story how consistently Paul would go back to the resurrection. He hung everything on the resurrection. So it's clear to us that both testaments of our Bible speak to us very specifically about a physical resurrection. And I don't think that that surprises anybody here. I think all of us already knew that and we already agreed with that. And so I don't think it is a surprise to any of us that the Bible teaches a physical resurrection. I think that what our questions are, not so much is there a physical resurrection, but our questions are, what's it like? What will the body be like? What will, what will that day be like? What will my resurrected, glorified body be like? I think those are the questions that interest us even more. Now, you may be surprised to, to hear that the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about our resurrected body, more than you might expect. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about our resurrected body, but it does tell us a surprising amount. And most of the information that we get about our resurrected body comes from our main passage that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. In that passage, Paul is going to speak about our resurrected body and he's going to compare it to a seed and a plant. He makes that comparison. As a seed is to a plant, so is your body now to your resurrected body. A seed and a plant obviously are very closely connected to one another, but they are very different from one another at the same time. So he uses that analogy to speak to us about the reality of a physical resurrected body. Let's look at what he says. This is in your sermon notes from verse 42 to verse 44. Paul says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So that is the most comprehensive treatment that we have of our physical body and what it will look like. Paul makes four comparisons in that body or in that passage, he makes four comparisons of our new body to our old body. And you see the comparisons. The first is perishable compared to imperishable. The second is glory compared to dishonor. Third is power compared to weakness. And the fourth is spiritual compared to natural. Four comparisons of the new body compared to the old body. Imperishable, glory, power, and spiritual. So let's look at those one by one. First of all, he says that our new bodies will be imperishable. Now we know what imperishable means. You have in your kitchen foods that are perishable and you have foods that are imperishable. Your perishable foods, your eggs and your milk and your bread and those things that don't tend to last very long. Then you also have your imperishable foods which tend to last a lot longer. A can of beans lasts a couple years. Or... Um, box of Pop-Tarts last several decades or something like that. We have perishable foods that, that 
decay and are given over to corruption rather quickly. And then, then we have imperishable foods which are given over to decay much more slowly. Now, nothing in your kitchen is truly imperishable. It's imperishable by comparison to the perishable foods. But what Paul is speaking of here is a true, authentic, imperishable, which means that it is not given over to decay or to weakness or to those things that would bring about decay, such as sickness, stress, feebleness, illness, disease, all those things would be perishable, which is description of our body now. But our description of our body then is a, is a body that is not given over to the things that bring about perishing. Age, the effects of age would, would, not, uh, would not be effective, would not affect our resurrected bodies. The things that cause disease, we think of Revelation 21, that all sickness is passed away and death is passed away and illness is passed away. Those things would describe our resurrected body. So our resurrected body would not be given to the effects of age, which is good news for all of us. But then the question always comes up, well, what age will we be in our resurrected body? Will we be the age that we were when we died? Or will we all be sort of 21? Scripture is absolutely silent on that. And so we should be too. Scripture never considers it a question that should be answered. And so for us, we should also consider that to be an irrelevant question. Just to know that our bodies are imperishable. Not given over to those things which bring about weakness and illness and passing away. Secondly, Paul says that our resurrected body is a body of glory. And the contrast is dishonor. So our bodies now experience dishonor. Scripture teaches us that we dishonor our bodies through sexual immorality. We dishonor our bodies in other ways. But our resurrected body will not be given over to dishonor. Instead, our resurrected body will be a glorious body. Now, when we think about that word glorious, I think that it tells us something of the appearance. Because glorious in the Scriptures, or glory in the Scripture seems to always be connected with appearance. And so, I think it's speaking to us of the attractiveness of our resurrected body. It will be a body that is physically, in appearance, a glorious thing. Um, but the Scriptures don't go further than that to tell us any more details, but it does say it will be a glorious body. Now, here's what's interesting about that word glorious. What's, in, what's interesting is how consistently that word in Scripture is connected with light. And I don't, don't want to take the time to trace through all the times that, that glorious and luminous are connected together, but it's, it's quite extensive through the Scriptures that glory and brightness seem to be together in one concept. But I do want to take a look at a few passages that seem to imply that our resurrected body will also have a sort of luminous quality to it. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Or Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. So those passages seem to imply that there will be a sort of luminous quality to our resurrected body. Now we can take both of those passages metaphorically. However, if we were to look at the context of both of those passages, there's nothing about those passages that would lead us to believe that they should be taken metaphorically. It's possible that they should. 
but they seem to strongly imply that our resurrected body will be a light-emitting sort of body to some degree, a luminous sort of body. Now we combine that with the, the experiences that we have in Scripture, for example, of the face of Moses. When Moses would convene with God in the tent of meeting, his face would literally glow from the meeting with God. Or we think of Jesus' body. Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that we will receive a body like Jesus' body. Jesus' resurrected body also seemed to be connected with light. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that's before His resurrection, but clearly in the Mount of Transfiguration passage, Jesus is shown in His glory. And, and the brightness of Jesus was what was so striking in that passage. Or think of Paul on the road to Damascus. The brightness of the appearance of Jesus was so striking to him. So it seems to be that our resurrected body will have some sort of a luminous type of quality to it. Glorious. In appearance, it will be striking. So Paul says it's glorious. Thirdly, he says it will be raised in power. It will be powerful. Now, I don't think that Paul is speaking here necessarily of superhuman type power that we can lift buildings and cars and that sort of thing, although I don't know that may be the case. But I do think that Paul is saying to us that our resurrected body will be physically much stronger than it is now. In the sense that we will be not inhibited by weakness, by physical weakness, from doing all the will of God. Or in other words, weakness of body will not inhibit us from completely and perfectly carrying out the will of God. Does weakness inhibit us now from... Perfectly serving God? Sure it does. We get tired. By the end of the service this morning, I'll be very tired. Weakness and tiredness can put limits on our service to God. However, our new resurrected body will have no limitations like that. Look at places like Revelation 7 when we see... Of course, Revelation 7 is before the resurrection, but we see even in Revelation 12 or Revelation 19, we see the, the saints gathered around the throne worshiping and praising God. And there will be no weakness or tiredness or lack of power that inhibits that. And whatever else, whatever other physical power is needed for us to serve God perfectly, we will have at that time. Our resurrected body will perform in a physical way. It will perform to perfection. It will have great physical power by comparison to what we have now. Lastly, Paul says that our resurrected body will be a spiritual body. Um, Now, the contrast to the spiritual body is not the um, physical body, but as Paul says, is the natural body. So sometimes we see that word spiritual and we think non-physical, but that's not Paul's meaning here. By spiritual, what Paul means, when Paul uses that word spiritual, almost every time that he uses that word, what he means is that which is in complete subjection to the leadership and the controlling of the Holy Spirit. That's usually Paul's meaning for spiritual. That which is spiritual is completely yielded to and completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. So our resurrected bodies will be perfectly, completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. The influence of the Holy Spirit upon us does not stop at physical death or resurrection. In fact, it just, in one sense, just really begins. We will be perfectly and completely controlled by the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit ever prompt you to do something and you hesitate and you fail to do it? 
Sure. We all do. That won't exist in our resurrected bodies. Our resurrected bodies will perform in such conformity to the desires of the Spirit that it will be as though we are like a glove on the hand of the Holy Spirit. That's how He will exert uh, that extent of control. We will, be, we will be completely responsive to the Spirit's leading. So that is some information that the, Spirit, that the Scriptures give us about our physical resurrected bodies. Certainly it's not all the information that we would want to have. We have uh, plenty more questions that we could ask about our physical bodies. However, the Scripture doesn't, doesn't necessarily address all the questions that we might have. Uh, many of the questions that we have about our physical bodies, we can, we can kind of get some answers through implication. For example, oftentimes we think of our resurrected body as having wings. Actually, nowhere in the Scripture does the, does the Scripture teach us that we will have wings. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that we will have a resurrected body like Jesus' body, and nobody had anything to say about Jesus' wings when He was resurrected. So we should not expect to have wings in our resurrected bodies. Um, we might ask about the clothes that we will wear. Scripture speaks only of the fact of us wearing white robes. doesn't speak about what style those robes will be or full length or partial length or showing at the knees or whatever. We don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us those things. Um, what about what language we'll speak? Again, Scripture is almost silent on that. It does tell us that all languages and all tongues are praising God, so we would assume that that means that language will continue. That if you speak English now, that you will speak English in your resurrected body. But I think that also it would imply that it's all understood. It's all recognized. And though uh, there's no language barrier, although language would still continue. But see, there's so many... We could, we could spend weeks and weeks just asking questions that would require us to just imagine what it would be like. But there's a curtain there. God has told us some things about what's beyond the curtain. And what He has not told us, He expects us to be content not knowing. So those are some things about the physical body itself. Now the next question I think that is probably in our minds is, what is the relationship between that resurrected body and the body that we have now? Do we, when we're resurrected, do we get a whole new model? Or does God just sort of fix what's broken about this one and we go on with this one? What's the connection between this body and that body? What the Scriptures will say to us is that there is a very distinct, very clear continuity between this body and our eternal resurrected body. It's a continuous thing between this body and the body that is to come. Um, for example, from Romans chapter 8, verse 11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. In other words, Paul doesn't say he's going to give you a new body. Right? Is that kind of language? I can't wait for my new body. Well, the Scriptures say that you will give life to the one you have, to your mortal body. Or Philippians 3, the Lord Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. So we think of that, this transforming of our lowly body to be a glorious body. God doesn't just start all over. There's a continuity between the two, which is another display of His power. Right? What's easier, just to start over with something new or to completely regenerate what's there? And so our God will completely and utterly regenerate what we have now in order to be raised in complete newness of life. Um, again, Paul uses the seed and the plant image. 
from uh, verse 37. What you sow is not the body but that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So this seed compared to plant is what Paul likes to go to there. And so there's, there's a continuity between the seed and the plant. The plant is very much different from the seed, but in another way, they are alike. Or, um, or again, um, from 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that passage, Paul's speaking about those who won't experience physical death. He says, we won't all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable. So those who are alive, those who have not had bodies that are given over to the grave, will also be changed. The assumption there is that that's a clear connection between the body that they inhabit at the time that Christ returns and the body that they'll receive. A clear connection. And then lastly, we think of Jesus' body. Jesus' body, in His resurrected state, displayed a clear continuity between His old body and His new body. For example, notice how the reaction of people seemed to be when they saw the risen Christ. It, it, It seemed to be this consistent type of reaction that they didn't recognize Him right away. They had maybe a little bit of trouble recognizing Him, but once they did, there was never any question that it was Him. In other words, our New Testaments know nothing about people wondering if this was an imposter or if this was just somebody that just really looked like Jesus. That's absent from the New Testament. Once people recognized Jesus, which they often didn't write at first, but once they recognized Him, Think of Thomas. Once he saw, oh yes, absolutely, that's you. And so there was a continuity between Jesus' unresurrected body and His resurrected body, so much so that people that, that saw Him, not immediately, but they knew that that was Him without question. Now we know that the physical body is perishable, given over to the effects of age. So perhaps it was that Jesus' resurrected body had the appearance of being younger than he was when he died. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and certainly that took a physical toll on his body, not to mention the form of execution. But even beyond that, perhaps Jesus at 30-something, 30 or 33, looked older than the resurrected Jesus looked, and so perhaps that was why it took him a moment to recognize him. But we don't know, but whatever whatever the case we know that there was a a clear continuity between Jesus' unresurrected body and His resurrected body. We should therefore expect the same, a continuity between this body and the body that is to come, which always raises the question, how? Because, you know, it's not hard to imagine God resurrecting a body that's been dead for 15 years. That's not difficult. What's a bit more difficult is to imagine God resurrecting a body that's been dead 1,500 years in which that body literally does not exist anymore. Or a body that, of a person that died at sea, and that body literally is no more. Or a body that was destroyed in some sort of massive explosion, or, or maybe the bodies of, of those who were in Hiroshima when the atomic bomb was dropped. All kinds of scenarios that you could think of in which the physical body is utterly destroyed, There is literally nothing left of it. How can God resurrect a body that is completely gone over to decay and destruction? For example, Abraham. Abraham's body is entirely given over to destruction. His body has become dust again. 
It has served as food for plants. Those plants have been eaten by animals. Those animals have been eaten by humans. Those humans have died. Their bodies have gone over into the dust. And that cycle has repeated over and over many, many times since Abraham's life. So how is it that God is able to resurrect that body that is continuous with the body that Abraham inhabited when he was alive? Well, I think we answer that question, first of all, by saying, like Jesus said, all things are possible with God. God who created the body is certainly capable of keeping track of Abraham's molecules, wherever they may be now. And He's certainly capable of doing that. But I don't think that that answers the question completely. But I think that if we think about the body, I think that we'll find that we don't really have as much problem with this as it seems that we may have. For example, let me ask the question. Do you have the same body that you had when you were born? Now, in one sense, we say, no, I mean, who, who has that? But what I mean is, literally, is the body that you inhabit, is it the same? It's not the same. In fact, it's not the same body that you had even a few years ago. Because our cells constantly die and are replaced. Some of our cells have a very, very short lifespan. Our red blood cells will last just a few weeks. White blood cells might last up to a year. Our skin cells only last a few days. And so your body is constantly being replaced. You are literally not the same person you were five years ago. You're a totally new person. You feel like a new person? Because you are a new person. So already we see that, well, the continuity between my body now and my body in 20 years is not the same thing that I would have expected it to be because at the cellular level, literally, we are constantly being replaced with new cells. Now, what makes your body now the same? For example, if your cells are constantly being replaced, you don't start looking like a different person, do you? You still look the same person. I mean, you, the effects of age wears on us and that sort of thing. But when your, your skin cells replace themselves on your face, it doesn't like, it's not like in a few years you'll have a different face. It's the same face. Or if your hair cells are brunette and curly, then in five years you'll still be brunette and curly, unless you're gray and curly. Or if your hair cells are blonde and straight, then they'll still be blonde and straight in the future. What is it that provides continuity between for a body that is constantly giving itself over to a new body? What does that is the genetic code of your DNA. Your DNA molecules contain a massive amount of information. And that information is what tells your new stomach cells to form themselves just like your old stomach cells were. And your new skin cells to form themselves the same way your old skin cells were. And on down the line. A massive amount of information provides consistency year to year as your body is regenerating itself. Now the Creator and the giver of all that information is certainly capable of using that same information to resurrect the same body. And I don't think he even needs one molecule to do that. So you see, it's not really that big of a problem. Our genetic code is what makes our physical bodies what they are. My genetic code is what makes my body different from yours. God is the one who created and gave my body the information that tells it to form itself as it does. 
And so it is not a stretch at all to think that the God who created that still has that information. And even if every molecule of my physical body has vanished, it's no problem for him to recreate from the same information a resurrected body in an imperishable condition. So you see, it's really not that big of a problem at all. So we see from the Scriptures, I think, that the Scriptures teach us a couple things. First of all, that we will be resurrected with a physical body. That physical body will be like our body now, but different. And there is a definite continuity between our body now and our body to come. So what I want to do as we finish this morning, I want to take this passage and I want to apply it to us. How do we apply the resurrection to our life today? What does the resurrection mean for your life right now? I think that the resurrection, first of all, of course, it, it, it should cause us to anticipate the resurrection event with great anticipation, but specifically for the here and now, what does the resurrection mean for your life? If God so honors the body that He created good, does that also not mean that in order to honor the resurrection, we also honor the body that God will honor? Does that make sense? To honor the resurrection means that we honor the body that God is going to resurrect. To dishonor the body that God is going to resurrect would also be to dishonor the resurrection. Make sense? So, I would like to talk just briefly about two ways that we can honor the body and thereby honor the resurrection. First of all, we honor the resurrection by honoring the body in life. To dishonor the body in life is to dishonor the body that, or dishonor the resurrection that God is going to bring. The, the, the body that God Himself sees as good enough to resurrect, we dishonor that in life by dishonoring the body. How do we dishonor the body? <clears throat> well, Scripture teaches us about all kinds of ways that we can dishonor our body. We can dishonor our bodies uh, with sexual immorality. We can dishonor our bodies by not properly caring for our bodies. Smoking. Poor eating habits, overeating, undereating, poor rest habits, lack of exercise. I mean, the list could, could go on and on. As we dishonor our body physically, we also dishonor the resurrection, which God has said to us, I honor the goodness of your body to the extent that I will go to the trouble to resurrect. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, we honor the resurrection in this life by honoring the body that God cares enough about to resurrect. Secondly, we honor the resurrection by honoring the body in death. And what I want to briefly speak about now is the practice of cremation. Cremation, as uh, you probably are aware of, cremation is, is the purposeful, intentional destruction of the body by fire. Cremation, just to kind of give us a little bit of background, people have been cremating bodies since people have been dying, I assume. For thousands and thousands of years, people have been cremating bodies. However, not God's people. All the information that we have about God's people says to us that God's people have never practiced the practice of cremation. For example, the Roman historian Tacitus writes about the Jewish people. He says that the Romans and the Greeks burned their dead but the Jews prefer to bury theirs. So we see that God's people from the Old Covenant honored the body in death to not burn it, but instead to bury it. 
Likewise, we look to the early church and we look to, for example, the last non-Christian Roman emperor was a man by the name of Julius the Apostate. Julius the Apostate ruled in the 4th century. And he wrote that one big factor for the spread of Christianity was how Christians honor their dead. And so we see God's people not practicing cremation, but practicing burial instead. In fact, the church forbid the practice of cremation up until the 20th century. So down through time, God's people have always been people that didn't practice cremation, but instead practiced burial. We've seen a, a phenomenon lately here in the 20th century, for maybe the past 75 to 100 years, we've seen Christians begin to practice cremation, but historically this has not been the case. We see, we see Christians throughout history who have a view to the body that says this body will be resurrected, and so therefore in disposing of the body, we will not intentionally destroy it any more than it's going to be destroyed naturally, so we will bury it instead of cremating it. So it's never been a Christian practice until recently. But let's think for just a moment about what the Bible says about cremation. Does the Bible address cremation? Well, you might not be surprised to, to hear that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about the practice of cremating bodies. The Bible does give us extensive examples of God's people burying the bodies of their dead. And it would take too much time to just go through all those examples because it's so many, but just some of the more important ones, for example... Uh, we remember Abraham, the only piece of land Abraham ever owned was the piece of land he bought to bury Sarah on. Or we think of Joseph, Joseph, how Joseph, he made his son's promise to carry his bones out of Egypt and bury his bones in the promised land. Or we think of the disciples, as the disciples were so careful to take the beheaded body of John the Baptist and bury it. Or think of Moses, whom God Himself buried. Or, Think of the body of Jesus at the care that was given to the body of Jesus as that body which had been physically very much destroyed. That body was cared for and laid carefully in a grave. So consistently, the Scriptures give us a picture of God's people treating the body after death with honor. And we would suppose that that means that those people have a view towards the resurrection. And the view towards the resurrection tells them that God will once again resurrect this body. This person will use this body again. I'm going to put it in the ground and it will decay, but I'm not going to add to the decay. I'm not going to accelerate that decay. So that's what the Scriptures sort of imply about cremation. But actually two times the Scriptures specifically address the burning of a body. One time the Scriptures address it in the context of pagan peoples and how pagan peoples do that. For example, uh, from Amos chapter 2, Verses 1 and 2, God is speaking here about the Moabite people, a people that don't know Him. He says, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because He burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So therefore, I'll send fire upon Moab. Because He burned bodies, I will burn Him. But again, that's in the context of pagan peoples who don't know God. One time the Scriptures speak of cremation in the context of God's people and that, that comes in the instance of the death of Saul and his sons. Take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 31. Saul and his sons have been killed in battle. And this is what we read. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, or the dead, the Philistines came to strip the bodies, 
they found Saul and his three sons on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And the passage goes on later to say how they took the bones after the body was burned and they buried the bones very carefully. So here's how I apply that passage. The bodies of Saul and his sons were mutilated. Heads were cut off, armor were stripped, the bodies were hung from the walls of the city. So we can imagine the, the degree of mutilation that the body had suffered. Here these, these residents of Jabesh-Gilead hear about that and how the bodies of God's people have been desecrated. And they take on this dangerous mission, they go all night to steal the bodies back. But because they've been mutilated, they burn the bodies and then carefully bury the bones. Here's what I gather from that. There may be instances in which a body enters physical death in a violent way and the body itself becomes rather mutilated in the process. We had an instance like that not too long ago. And in those instances, we don't dishonor the body by burning it in, that, in those cases. But in most cases, God's people don't burn bodies. We bury bodies. Think of it this way. Your funeral is the last witness that you will have on this earth. It's the last witness you will have. What will your funeral say about how you view the body that you're no longer in and what you expect to happen to that body in the future. If that body is cremated, then that has to say something about what you expect to come. Now, can God resurrect an, a, a cremated body? Absolutely. That's not the point. The, not, the point is not that God can't resurrect it. The point is, what is your witness? What are you saying to those who remain behind about the body that God has created? I understand cremation is far less expensive. And I understand that funerals are ridiculously expensive. What's it worth to you that your last witness is one that is consistent with the Scriptures that teach the honor of the body and teach that we're not done with that and God is not done with it. He created it good and He will resurrect it again to life. This is not saying, folks, don't hear me wrong, this is not saying that if you have a relative that has been cremated, that that person sinned. The Bible never tells us that it's sin to cremate a body. So it's not about sinning or not sinning. It's about what is the best witness for the Christian to leave behind. If you've made plans for that day in your life, and those plans involve cremation, I would just encourage you to prayerfully consider that. To prayerfully consider changing. Burial is much more expensive than cremation. But has there ever been an instance in which God's people wanted to honor Him and He didn't provide us the resources that we needed to do it? So if you've considered that, and if you've relegated yourself to that, let me just challenge you to rethink that. I often hear Christians talk about the body after death in very disdainful ways. They'll say, I'm done with that body and I'm just putting that body off. And that's just not the full biblical picture. 
The full biblical picture is that that body was contaminated with sin. It was deeply tainted from sin. And so it enters into an extended period of rest. But God will resurrect that same body in newness of life. Let us all just endeavor to leave this world with one last witness that speaks to that truth that is to come.